This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Morning Liberty. Well, what is up, all of our Liberty loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston. Charlie is in this episode as well, but I'm recording the intro at a separate time. Today was a very special episode. We had the honor to interview Joe and Norberg. And let me just tell you what, it was a great interview. He's been a big influence on us, on our overall worldview and having appreciation for looking at history, where we've came from, where we are right now. It was really great. He's got a new show coming out from Free to Choose called New and Improved. And the first episode of that was just released today. So I'm actually going to play you the one minute preview of, of this show. And then we're going to go right into the interview. I hope you enjoy. Real progress comes from a willingness to embrace innovation, explore new ideas, and sometimes do away with the old ones. I'm Joe Norberg, and I'm back with a new video series, which explores the social and economic forces that help spark change through stories of human innovation, from the light bulb to the vaccine, from artificial fertilizer to the PC, credit cards to shipping containers. Humanity has a natural desire to cooperate and trade with free and open markets, accelerating improvements to our lives like never before. And the driving force behind that human progress? Out with the old and in with the new. It's not good morning, uh, Liberty. It's good evening, Liberty, in Sweden right now. Um, thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm a freelance author and lecturer and documentary filmmaker. So I, um, I'm freelance, basically. I write my books, I do my documentaries, I do my stories, but I do have a couple of affiliations. I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, the libertarian think tank in Washington, D.C., and I'm also affiliated with Free to Choose Network, where I produce most of my uh, documentaries and video series, where the um, it's about current events, it's about political economy, it's about intellectual history, but most of all, it's about liberty in one way or another. So we were just talking earlier, there is a new show out called New and Improved, right? And the first episode was out today. I believe it was about containers. <laughs> and so, I, I, you know, that's, that's not exactly what we didn't know what it was going to be about. I knew I was going to be able to watch it, but it was so interesting. So I guess just what, what is this new show specifically all about? Well, thank you. It's... Um... It's about innovation and what makes it possible, because my basic take on the world is that we should be happy to live in this moment in time. Not when we look at politics, then we all get depressed, but when we look at what uh, scientists and uh, engineers and entrepreneurs create all the time, constantly, uh, then we can notice that we, we've never experienced uh, these long lifespans, uh, the kind of wealth that we have, we've reduced extreme poverty around the world from around 90% 200 years ago to around 9% today. There are amazing 
developments and progress going on everywhere. But why? And my, my, my take is that it's because of the innovators. It's because of the eccentrics and the entrepreneurs who come up with better ways of doing things. So this new video series, uh, I, I'm trying to look at things that we do take for granted. Um, why does shipping work? Well, now we have all these transportation bottlenecks, and that should really tell us that we shouldn't take this infrastructure of globalization for granted. We should look at things like container, this standardized metal box that doesn't seem very romantic to most people, perhaps not even beautiful, um, but it's really the one that has lifted our living standards more than almost anything else because it's made it possible for us to specialize all over the world and uh, to come up, create more competition between places because suddenly it's it's possible to, to ship whatever we produce to the other side of the globe. So looking at innovations and what made it possible, that's what I'm doing in this series, new and improved. Well, you know, now they're turning those shipping containers into Airbnbs. <laughs> so they are beautiful yeah. to, to a lot of people. Those are great uh, structures. And how in the world did you predict this, uh, the shipping container or the, I guess the, the supply chain nightmare for, for this <laughs> at first episode to air today? Yeah, well, um, yeah. Th and, and that thing with Airbnbs in, um, in those containers, that really proves the point about human ingenuity. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Nature and mankind hates vacuums, and we use resources and come up with better ways, unless somebody stops us. And that's often what goes on, and that's the reason why I predicted lots of bottlenecks. We've seen so much of uh, distortions, of uh, governments getting involved, starting trade wars and coming up with new tariffs and paying people to stay at home and not to go to work, Well, and, and sending them checks. Well, what happens then? Well, we want to spend lots of money, but it gets more expensive and more difficult to get things across borders. And people just don't really want to return to work just yet uh, under those circumstances. So that's bound for trouble. Well, if you could tell us a little bit, um, uh, how, how does America's response to the coronavirus pandemic differ to Sweden's response to the coronavirus pandemic. It's, it's slightly different from what I understand. Yeah, uh, not because America is an outlier, but Sweden is. And it has really been interesting to have one foot on each continent so that I could compare uh, things. Well, Sweden was the one place where the government politicians didn't panic and shut everything down and um, force people to stay at home and impose curfews and shut down workplaces and public transportation. Instead, what the Swedish government did, and especially the public health authorities, they said, there's a dangerous new disease out there. Uh, let's try to avoid to meet and greet if you can. So they recommended social distancing. And, and that's the difference. Rather than sending the police, uh, they sent some good advice on how to behave. <laughs> and it's interesting that when you look at mobility data in Sweden, it looked quite similar to lots of other places because, yeah, you don't want to hurt yourself and your loved ones and you try to avoid going places if you don't have to, but at least it gave some space, some room for people to do it if they really needed to. And that's something that I think builds public support for the Swedish model in, in here in, in Sweden and uh, made it possible to make social distancing a little bit more sustainable. We could live with it because we could make exceptions if we really needed it. A lot of what we a lot of what we see in the media is uh, supply chain or anything else that's happening. It's coming from the coronavirus pandemic. And we like to refer to it uh, as the government's response to the pandemic. We said a long time ago on the show that there are more ways than a virus that a human can die and suffer. Um, why do you think it is that most institutions around the world didn't take into consideration the unbelievable economic and, and other types of impacts that are undoubtedly going to happen that's going to be almost impossible to quantify over the next decade or so. That's an incredibly important point. And this is the biggest 
problem with all policies. It doesn't take alternative costs into account. It doesn't look at alternatives, the things that could have happened or things that wouldn't have happened if we didn't implement these policies. And I think we're seeing the results of that right now. If you focus all your attention on one problem, then you act decisively and you show people that you really take this serious, this seriously. But you don't think about how does this affect our kids when they don't go to, go to school and they miss out on learning, especially if you come from a home where you don't have that kind of uh, educational uh, background. Uh, we've seen a dramatic rise in mental illness, in depression, in anxiety around the world, and obviously the, the economic cost when things are shutting down. The latest data from the World Bank uh, says that almost 100 million people were thrown back into extreme poverty uh, in 2020 because of the shutdowns and the lockdowns, um, the lack of, of trade and mobility. and uh, I mean, probably those impacts are worse than the disease. And that tells you something about how short-sighted policies can be. It's a perfect example of that. And I think it's the one reason is that it was a brand new disease and we didn't understand what it was and everything new is scary and we want to do, and we all want to be China in a way. That's what happened. China shut everything down. And then some politicians in democracies thought that they should behave like that. And then everybody else followed. There was a great study done by a couple of researchers looking at when and why did governments implement shutdowns. And they showed that it was not linked to the specific state of the transmission or the number of hospital beds or anything about the economy or nothing like that. The one factor that explained it was, what did the neighbors do? Did a country close to you shut down? Then you did the same thing. So it was basically just, it was difficult for lots of politicians to say that uh, now we will choose a different path to all the others, because if that went wrong, you don't want to get blamed. It's, um, it's. I mean, if you're an individualist, you want to be the the odd man out. But if you're looking for popularity, perhaps you you don't want to have that. Well, it was interesting too. At least uh, in America, if you looked at the polling, it was something like fifty percent of Democrats thought that if you contracted the virus, then you would end up hospitalized or um, or death. And it was somewhere around 40% of Republicans thought the same thing. And so you had on both sides uh, a great fear of the populace. And, and um, talk about that a little bit. Is that, is that the number one thing governments use that you've seen around the world is, is the, a fear mechanism? And then how do we tailor the message, which you've done a phenomenal job, by the way. I, I love all of your work and everything. How do, how do we educate others, especially like – you know, our listeners or, or things that we could find to tailor our message to um, circumvent that fear. Um, yes, that is the key issue. I wrote a book recently called uh, Open, the Story of Human Progress with really the worst timing ever because it was published right in the middle of the pandemic when everything mm-hmm. shut down. Um, difficult time to be talking about openness uh, back then. But my point there, and I wrote, wrote it before the pandemic, was that openness to new ideas, to surprises, to innovation, to trade, to other people, to new points of view, that explains progress historically. It's, it's done that for 300,000 years by now. And what destroys that, what makes us turn inwards and shut things down? Well, most often it's a crisis, a real or perceived crisis. Uh, It could be a natural disaster or a great depression, or it could be war, military conflict or geopolitical disturbances or pandemics. Historically, pandemics has often led to these kinds of reactions against uh, openness because the world seems dangerous. Let's just hide away from, from it all. Uh, so in a way, a crisis triggers this societal fight or flight instinct. And we look for a strong man. We look for the big government to protect us from 
this this problem and in a way intuitively that makes sense because historically once upon a time on the east african savannah a crisis probably meant that the other tribe was here to kill us and we needed to to listen to the big man and to know how to fight back but nowadays you, you don't fight back like that and that's the message that we have to tell everybody i think because there are real crises i mean the the um the coronavirus even though most people aren't hospitalized it is dangerous disease and lots of people uh, have suffered and died from it but the solution is not to sort of fight back and have one government point in a certain direction because what happens when they point us in the wrong direction uh, we should react to crises but the way, best way to do that is by uh, utilizing all the knowledge that's out there in society in each and every individual and business who knows how to behave according to their circumstances to do everything from protecting themselves to making sure that their kids get an education to rerouting supply chains to make sure that there's food on the shelves and i think it's it's very easy to look at this pandemic it should be a great case study in what worked and what didn't work and i think for sure what really worked was when people were allowed to make decisions according to their own local knowledge. You can't centralize all of that. That's an insight that the, the Austrian economists and von Mises and Hayek taught us long ago, and it really applies to the pandemic. Another great thing that's working is we are getting some medical innovations out of this. You could say the vaccine, you could say antiviral pills. Uh, we can find ways of repurposing other medications, perhaps. And I think that people need to have uh, some uh, maybe a gratitude or a little bit of appreciation for some of that innovation, because that has been the thing that's helped people all along. Amen. And that's why I'm saying that, look, 2020 or 2021 wasn't the best year ever um, because we really suffered some major difficulties but it was really the best years ever to face a pandemic like this had, had we done this um, uh, 10 years ago we wouldn't have the mrna technology to create these vaccines had we done this um, 25 years ago, I mean, we wouldn't have the uh, World Wide Web in, in the version that we've got now. So we wouldn't be able to communicate and get some kind of learning to our kids or, or order food uh, or keep in touch with our loved ones. And had we done this in the year 1950, we wouldn't have any kind of ventilators at all because those weren't invented. So that tells you again about science, technology, innovation. That's really what saves us constantly. And I mean, the, the vaccines, look at this in historical perspective. It, it took us some 3000 years to get a vaccine against the pol polio. Uh, it used to take thousands or at least hundreds of years to get vaccines. Now, within a year, we managed to uh, begin to vaccinate people within a year of even learning about this virus for the first time. And that's because of this uh, advance in science on so many different fronts. And uh, you're right, this we should be grateful. And so there's certainly an episode of new and improved soon about this. <laughs> What's even more amazing than that is Moderna actually had their vaccine ready that weekend. Um, it was just jumping through the government hoops really for a year. It's the vaccine right. that they use today. It was developed that weekend after the, the sequence was released, which is unbelievable. Um, and of course I'm, you know, I, I think what holds us back is those, uh, massive institutions, um, you know, out of fear of safety. And so that's, and, but that's a hard message to sell on the other side, right? <laughs> It is, but you're absolutely right. And uh, the, it's not just technology that made, and, and science and the state of science and the international cooperation between researchers. It's also the case that politicians for once didn't stood in the way, didn't stand in the way to uh, this development and accepted to speed up the, the security and the safety. Uh, and, and, and in that case, look at all the other areas where we could have had the same development if we had had the same 
kind of attention given to it from politicians. And I think we can really learn something from that. We should learn something from that because there are many other diseases that are much worse than uh, than COVID. And, and how do we explain it? This is so difficult since we're all so risk adverse. But what I'm trying to tell people is, you know, whenever a the FDA tells you that, look, we now have a new drug against, I don't know, high blood pressure, and it will probably save the lives of uh, 100,000 people, 100,000 Americans every year. Uh, so you're, you're welcome. Please start using it. Well, that actually means that every year they delayed that treatment. They, they basically killed 100,000 Americans because of that. So we have to keep in mind not just what is seen, but also what is not seen. What could have happened if we didn't have these strict regulations? And I mean, we, we do need lots of safety. We don't want to create um, uh, horrors and we don't want to create backlashes against uh, treatment. But I do think that this risk aversiveness has been institutionalized in our governmental authorities. And that's really an area where we have to open up. Well, another really big area where this is happening right now is uh, just switching to another uh, crisis that we have to deal with and the government has to do it is with climate change. And uh, we just talked a lot about a potentially looming energy crisis. We're dealing with inflation all over the place. We're dealing with supply shortages. We're dealing with governments shutting down their fossil fuels, their nuclear plants. <laughs> they don't want to move towards that because they're so scared. And then we're also just relying on these technologies that are that are potentially good and cool, but they're not quite ready yet. And these could have some pretty bad repercussions if we if we force our way into this and it's not ready yet. Yeah, exactly. I love innovation and I have great belief in the future of many um, known and many uh, hitherto unknown uh, sources of energy and fuel and, and so on. But it's always difficult when the government tells you that we should speed it along a certain route and shut other things down because they are not perfect, because it might result in um, in things like, yes, shutting down nuclear power uh, or uh, not moving towards natural gas. So it means, yeah, great with solar and, and wind, but the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And so far, we don't have the sort of storage capacity to, to really handle that. So we'll see an increase in, in prices and we'll see absurdly in many places a return to the dirtiest forms of coal. Lots of people look to Germany for sort of the great green future with their Energiewende when they were starting to dismantle nuclear power and um, subsidizing heavily solar and, and wind instead. But the end result, since they need some backup capacity when those uh, when the sun doesn't shine, it meant that they had to restart lots lots of the dirtiest form of lignite coal. Uh, so Germany actually did much worse than not just Sweden and um, France and Britain, but also much worse than the US. So countries that didn't have a big plan telling everybody what to do, but more making use of, of the ingenuity of different entrepreneurs who worked according to many different uh, ways of doing things. So it's really another instance where you should be worried when the government points us in one direction because they might point us in the wrong one. Yeah. And it's so interesting. You know, we were uh, reading some of uh, the story the other day where they've outlawed fracking in the UK. Um, you know, our president Biden doesn't seem to be, uh, well, he's shutting down pipelines and also looking at essentially outlawing something like fracking. And, and it's never, it's, I go, I keep going back to that. How do we, how do we message against the centralization message? Um, it's like the, it, the extreme response message, you know, how do we actually work towards the problem? Right. Because the, the market is so beautiful at solving these problems in the necessary timing. And of course it's not perfect. Right. I think, I think a lot of, um, let's say centrist planners point out, um, market flaws, but I think 
Well, I guess it was Milton Friedman who said it best is if anytime you turn a market problem over to a government problem it, or a market failure to a government, it just becomes a government failure. It's still a failure. Um, and yeah. so, so how do, I mean, how do we, how do we get politicians to stop outlawing things that may be necessary? So, uh, you know, a bunch of old poor people don't die in the UK because they can't turn on their heat this winter. Yeah, no, you're right. Did you turn that market failure into a government failure? And since the government has access to laws, regulations and other people's money, they can make mistakes as well, but much larger <laughs> mistakes and nobody's going to stop them because, you know, the difference is that on the market, uh, we make mistakes constantly and it's trial and error. Nothing comes fully formed and perfect, but on the market, you have this constant feedback process from people who give you honest feedback because they are buying your products and your services and they don't want it to fault the products. And you receive feedback from people who risk their own resources, whereas in governments, that's not the case. So we all make mistakes. The question is, how do you build a system of institutions to make sure that as much capital and, and labor move from the mistakes to the potentially much more uh, hopeful places. And I think to, um, so that's the first key message, I think, looking at where's the knowledge and where are the good health institutions to, to deal with it. Because, you know, um, Frederick Bastiat, the 19th century economist, wrote the most important essay ever written, quite short, so everybody has, there's no excuse not to read it, what is seen and what is not seen. And the problem is that everybody focuses on what is seen, the immediate consequences of action, of somebody doing something immediately here and now. And that's why governments can take uh, lots of credit for, look, we helped this business, we created these jobs over here. Yeah, that's right, you did. But what is not seen? What would have happened with those resources had they not been used over here? Because one thing I've learned over the um, decades that I've studied economics and history is one key lesson is that people do something with their money. They do not bake it into pies. Uh, they spend it on things that they think have a great future. And uh, in that case, that would have created jobs, technologies, businesses over there in places that we now can't see. And that's the only difference between a bad economist and a good economist, as, as Bastia puts it. The bad economist only looks at, at what is seen, whereas the good economist tries to take everything else into account. But the problem, of course, is it's more difficult to point to that. It's more difficult to tell people about things that aren't there and that aren't visible and that can't be seen. So that's why we have to um, look at government failure and remind people of that. For every man they landed on the moon, uh, they also tried with the wrong forms of nuclear power and they uh, had the wrong supersonic flights and they had the ethanol car that they said that everybody had to buy until they realized that, no, this was a terrible failure. Um, they constantly make those mistakes. And it's also a reason to look at the innovations that we now hold dear, which is really what I'm trying to do in a modest way with the new and improved series. Where did they come from? They did not come from committees of planners. They came from people working hard in their basements and in their garages and experimenting and, and um, uh, lots of perspiration going into that because they were free to do so. And mm -hmm. I just want to add to your point real quick. The other, uh, the other thing I think is, is that, uh, government and these institutions, they, they bear none of the consequences or negative repercussions like the market does. And that's why the market's a better solution, even though it does fail sometimes, at least the market bears the negative consequences and repercussions, whereas government can abdicate themselves from that every time. Exactly. And I mean, there are failures everywhere and we should have failures. If we don't fail, we haven't tried hard enough and we haven't experimented right. enough. But when you do it with your own money, then you're very careful and you try to end those mistakes rapidly and transfer the resources to something more worthwhile. That's not what happens in politics because you have other incentives and you don't use your own money. And that's why I'm trying to tell politicians when, when sort of they engage in 
picking winners in green technology or in corporate welfare. Why would you know better than we and all the millions of people on the market? Well, perhaps you think you do. But in that case, put your own money where you put the tax dollars first. If you really believe in this beautiful future for this product or this business or this technology, well, why don't you mortgage your home and spend your kids' college fund on this first before you ask us? Because if it's such a brilliant venture, you're going to make lots of money on this. Well, I, I think one of the major problems um, on the climate change thing, and, uh, you know, we are, I guess, we're, we're free market capitalists. And when you look at people who believe in the central planning and the collectivism, they, one problem I see is that they don't understand how things are created or they don't, uh, I guess, take enough time to look into that. And if you were talking to someone who's very worried about climate change, they need, I, I want to find a way to let them realize that without these innovations and without the money going into the right spaces, we wouldn't even have the technologies that they are wanting to, to force on everyone right now. We wouldn't be able to do that. And if they actually want this nice, clean and green future, what we should have is more free markets and more innovation, not take our chips down right now and say that we've reached peak capitalism and it's time to spread everything out. Don't take the chips down. We need more innovation and more creation to actually get to that future. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you know, I'm worried about climate change and I think there are very problematic consequences. So what do we do? Should we panic and say that, look, it's peak capitalism and now we need degrowth and do less well, you know, we just tried that during the pandemic unintentionally. We stopped flying. We stopped moving about. Half the world's population faced a curfew. And it was a disaster because the human toll was 100 million people thrown back into poverty. But how much did it reduce total carbon dioxide emissions in 2020 in total around the world? By 6%, no more than 6%. So it means, well, if you were trying to reach the Paris Climate Accords until 2030 in this way, by doing less, you would need one pandemic a year until then without any kind of um, resurrection of the economy in between. Uh, so that tells you we can't do it. It's not enough in limiting carbon dioxide emissions and the human cost would be absolutely disastrous because we really need that electricity. And we also learned that this is definitely the most expensive way of reducing carbon dioxide emissions. By doing less, the implied cost of every ton of carbon dioxide um, when you just had negative growth was around $1,500 or something like that to remove it. Well, you know, the best technologies that we've got for sucking carbon dioxide back from the atmosphere and store it are now cheaper than that. So any kind of innovative way of, of doing things is, things are, are, is better than, than negative growth. Uh, and only capitalism can give us that. And only that dispersed competitive system where everybody's free to experiment with different ways of doing it is the way forward. Because yes, we want green technologies, but which ones are going to work? I don't know. Is it wind? Is it solar? Is it fourth generation nuclear power? Is it fuels made from algae? I don't know. Could be either. Uh, or if it's solar, is it by uh, having huge solar parks out there somewhere in, in the Saharan desert? Or is it by finding up new materials in which we can clothe our cars and, and, and houses and clothes and perhaps or perhaps by solar power in outer space where the sun always shines i don't know and you don't know nobody knows and that's the key to technological development that we need those different experiments working different routes and then suddenly somebody comes comes up with a better way of making sure that they do it in a routine kind of way that makes prices collapse and uh, makes it cheaper than what we had before. It doesn't come from the top from top down systems. 
Yeah, it could. I mean, we could be mining asteroids, you know, <laughs> in the future, <laughs> Who knows? which I think is highly likely. And and you, I mean, that's another great example there. I mean, you look at a guy like Elon Musk who reduced the cost of launching a satellite into space by ninety percent from what NASA was doing. I mean. From $600 million down to $60 million, $60 million is still a lot of money, but it's not $600 million. And to get satellites into space and, and to potentially bring Internet to all parts of the world, and, and you look at all these guys that are doing those things. You know, we also tried something similar, or, or I guess, you know, uh, the Netherlands and a lot of Europe tried something sim- similar, I would guess, too, when, when they reached – peak capitalism in the you know 60s and 70s where you had uh, even uh, Sweden and Switzerland and all of those try a form of socialism and instituted these welfare states so talk a little bit about you know what happened um, during those time periods and and what were the results of those I believe you started to go into it in the, the well first. I was gonna, yeah I was gonna say we were told here in the US by Bernie Sanders that what he wants is Swedish style socialism. And when I look at how, uh, when I look at what he wants for taxes and then what Sweden has for taxes and their economic structure, I, I'm finding some differences there that maybe you can enlighten us on. Yeah. You know, in a way, I think that Bernie's right. America should be more like Sweden in, in many areas. Uh, in Sweden, we have reformed social security. So the pension system is now uh, defined um, contributions rather than benefits, partly privatized. Uh, we have implemented um, lots of deregulation and competition in the public sector, for example, school vouchers, so that private schools get the same kind of public funding as the public ones. We've um, reduced uh, taxations in many ways. Corporate taxes are already lower than in the United States uh, and much lower than where Bernie Sanders would <laughs> want it to go. Uh, there's no property tax. There's no tax on estates. There's no tax on inheritance. Uh, it's quite different from what the American left thinks. So the, the key here is that their perception of Sweden is stuck in the 1970s, just like their own policies in a way. So they think we're still the way we were back then. But we realized something back then that it just didn't work. Um, and then sort of the background to this whole idea of uh, thinking about peak uh, capitalism in the 1960s and building a big government was that, well, we got cocky. Sweden was already the third or fourth richest country on the planet. Uh, After a 100 year period of small government free trade policies, we were so rich that we just thought that now the only question is how do we redistribute this? And that's what happened. And in 20 years, they doubled the size of government, regulated most things and increased taxes quite a lot. And that was a period between 1970 and the beginning of the 1990s. And that's what everybody still remembers around the world. They remember that, look, Sweden is a rich country and they've implemented these almost socialist policies. It seems to be working. But no, it's just like that old joke, you know, how do you end up with a small fortune? Well, you start with a large fortune and then you (laughs) waste most of it. And that's really what we did. This 25-year period, that wasn't the golden era in Sweden, that was our Atlas Shrugged era, when entrepreneurs and innovators left Sweden. You know, IKEA uh, left Sweden, the Tetra Pak companies left Sweden, investors, uh, inventors, they all went elsewhere or just stopped doing stuff. So this was the only period in modern Swedish history where we lagged behind all the other countries and didn't create a single net job in the private sector for more than 25 years. Wow. Uh, it was a disaster. And um, don't take it from me. One famous observer said that, look, we have to realize, and especially in the early 1990s, when it all ended, it was ended with a big debt an inflation fueled boom. Uh, we had a big financial crisis. And then this observer said that, look, this democratic socialist experiment was absurd and perverse. And that person was the social democratic minister of finance at the time, Kjellula <laughs> Felt. So from the left to the right, there was a consensus in Sweden that we're going to have to do something about this because 
we're going down the drain. Uh, and then we had a new reform period when we did many of these things, deregulating, opening up the economy, reducing taxes again. And after that, Sweden has come back in many areas, at least. And at least we've become an entrepreneurial country again with many companies going global. Um, the uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm thinking we need to move there maybe to start some businesses. It sounds like maybe it's better than here. Um, one thing that I think what the left doesn't really get is uh, when they say is that we want Swedish socialism. I think what they're saying is they want the outcomes of Sweden's economic policies. They don't they don't mean that they want the economic policies that actually led to it. And that's the disconnect between people. They they say well, we want the we want the social welfare state that Sweden has. And so to do that, we're going to enact Venezuela style economic policies to get there and this is magically going to happen. But we can't seem to make that connection when we're when we're talking to people about this. Right. No, but I think there's a reason why everybody keeps returning to Sweden and Denmark, and that's because all the other examples fail miserably. You know, they've gone through them all. Like, uh, in the 50s, the Soviet Union was apparently the model, and they were going to bury us economically as well. And then, of course, that failed, but then we always have uh, China, and, and Mao seems to be doing quite all right. <laughs> the only good thing he did, ever did was to die so that they could unleash reforms and then begin to reduce poverty big time. <laughs> and then Cuba, uh, then Venezuela, and it's always the same thing. Somebody talked about it as the three stages of, of socialism. First, everybody just looks at how they redistribute lots of wealth and it seems to be making wonders in the short term and, and everybody's happy we should be like them and then the second stage is that oh you begin to realize that it doesn't look very good so you begin to say oh look this is international sabotage or they may have had some problems with the weather and so on that's probably where Venezuela is right now uh, and then the third stage is the collapse uh, like when Venezuela's per capita income drops by 75 percent and seven million people flee uh, the third stage then is to say oh that wasn't real socialism and then they move on to the next socialist example that hasn't failed as spectacularly yet but they'll always have Sweden and Denmark. Uh, and, and the only problem is that those countries aren't socialist and, and in many ways, in several areas, actually more free market than the United States. So it's it's just a silly game of bait and switch, uh, I think. You, you just said, so I, I stuck on it this whole time, I'm gonna have to type it out. I don't know if you want this with a quote uh, in your name below it, but I believe you said the only good thing Mao ever did was die. <laughs> <laughs> that's I've never heard I that before, but I'm going to steal it and I'm going to use it on the podcast. All right, that's, I'm just letting you know beforehand. <laughs> well, that stops all my plans from ever going to China again. But, uh, <laughs> okay, fine, fine. We'll say that we said it. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I want to know something. Uh, I guess uh, more personally from you, which is. I, you know, I consider myself a, a pretty optimistic person. You can ask Nate. And Compared Nate's, to me, that's very true. Nate's my pessimistic counterpart here, and uh, so I tend to view the world in, in in a in a in a good light and think generally good things are going to happen. Uh, but man, you know, we do a political show every day, so diving into everything, I find myself just um, you know in in the bottomless pit of pessimistic hell mm -hmm. and so how do you how do you stay so positive how did you how did you come about researching all of this and and finding a passion for it and writing you know an amazing book and receiving all the backlash uh, for believing what you believe like how do you stay positive in all of this uh well it's not always easy as you, <laughs> as you hint at uh but i think two things help me uh first of all studying history keeps the mood up and and limiting my attention to twitter uh, <laughs> those two things explain my optimism and i'll, I'll tell you why uh, first of all you can't study history without becoming an optimist because you realize the terrible circumstances that all our ancestors lived through and struggled through and, and actually came through eventually um, it was such a long series of 
chronic undernourishment, desperate poverty, and total, complete oppression everywhere. And so you you have to be grateful for being alive today. With all it, for all its faults, this is the best period of time to be alive. Just compare us now to uh, before the Industrial Revolution 200 years ago. Um, back then, average life expectancy was 30 years. If you're more than 30 years old, you should be sort of chronically grateful for all the technology and science and capitalism out there because you wouldn't be around otherwise. So now it's more than 70 around the world. Uh, we Literacy back then was one out of 10 people could read and write around the world and have any kind of information about what was going on in the world. Now it's basically the other way around. One in 10 can't. Uh, extreme poverty reduced from around 90% to 9% today. So I also wake up every morning watching the news thinking the world is falling apart. But I've got this corrective in the back of my mind <laughs> as well from history. Look, I. I wouldn't even be alive had I lived in any other uh, period of time. But the other one is that I try to stay away from politics, <laughs> which is difficult when <laughs> all I do is politics in a way. But, you know, it's so easy to be depressed, become depressed, if you pay too much attention to what is being said and all the, the stupidity and all the anger and all the resentment out there. And that's why I try to limit my attention to that. And I only I step into that um, river once in a while, but then I do it with this kind of preconception that now I'm going to be mad <laughs> for a while, and then I'll step out of it and do something else. And then I'll read about what is going on in, in science, in the economy, new business ventures, the things that really make progress all the time, because that's a positive sum world where everybody who comes up with a new and better idea on doing something tomorrow helps us all. Whereas in politics, it's a zero-sum game. They all fight for limited attention and a limited number of places in, in political constituencies. And that's why they hate one another and throw dirt at each other constantly and come up with the worst possible arguments all the time. And, and there's a place and time for that as well. You have to step into it to try to sort of remove some of the dirt as well uh, but um, not too much and you have to know what you're up to you know when i read progress i literally sent it to as many people as i could it's because pronounced I was, progress progress okay progress All right. that's right the correct the correct pronunciation <laughs> i'm sorry um i literally sent it to everyone and just uh, you know briefly tell me why do you think you know along the lines of you know steven pinker um uh his angel book, the, the angel of our nature. Um, you have Jonathan Haidt and, um, even Jordan Peterson and all of these intellectuals that talk about how good the world is. Why do you think there's so much backlash against that? Oh, because it's the quickest way to ruin a nice dinner party. <laughs> you know, nothing makes people as mad as telling them that, look, this problem that you worry so much about and that you've built much of your identity upon and perhaps some of your political views, uh, it's not a big problem. We're actually solving it right now. That you, if you, some people say, if you remove hope from people, that's the worst thing you can do. No, I think removing despair from people, that makes them even angrier. <laughs> because, because I think much of what motivates us is the anger that we feel about certain issues. And I mean, that goes for me as well, injustices and oppression and, and poverty around the world, that motivates me. And But to some, I think, if you tell them that, look, in the last 20 years, 152,000 people were lifted out of extreme poverty every day, every day for 20 years, the ship it seems to be steady, apart mm. from the shutdowns during the pandemic. Then we um, jump back in time around three years until capitalism uh, starts starts up again. Um, but if you tell people that, it might seem to some people that, oh, so this plan that I had for constantly redesigning the entire world economy is not a good thing. Or to some, it seems like you don't care about poverty because you're saying it's it's moving in the right direction. Mm. And I think that's that's 
one reason. Uh, but we know from history also that uh, despair sells. It sells books and it sells newspapers and uh, uh, it's uh, because we are problem-oriented um, people, all of us, um, whether we know it or not. I mean, those of our ancestors on the East African savanna who sat in front of the campfire and said, look, we've hunted and gathered 90% more this year than last year. We should be all, all be happy and just relax. Uh, <laughs> they were probably killed by a predator or something because they were because it was a dangerous world and it was never enough to to be satisfied you were always close to to death and being erased from the gene pool whereas those who constantly sat by the, the campfire and thought about any kind of potential problem that could come up an approaching storm or another tribe or a lion they probably survived it uh, and they spread their genes to us, but also their stress hormones to us. So whenever we now hear about a problem, we think that, look, that this is the thing that we've got to do something about instantly. Uh, we forget about context. We forget about how to act in a productive way against those problems because we just think that we've got to act or become depressed by it. And that's why... If someone tells you about the world's problem, it seems like they're kind and they're warning you about a potential problem on the horizon. Whereas if someone tells you that, look, it's things are pretty good, it sounds like you're selling something. It sounds like you're trying to deceive people and uh, not tell them about the real horrors out there. And I think that's one reason why optimism, even though it is factually based and we um, we have all the data series to prove it uh, it's it will never be really popular because people want to be a little bit afraid you're dismissing their feelings <laughs> and that's that's, that's most important. Is. Yeah. You said that that was a I good do. way. You said it was a good way to ruin a dinner party. Just one one more thing real quick. A worse way to end a dinner party is what I read in your book, which is you having to store all the human waste underneath your floor. And then it becomes so soaked with it that your entire dinner party falls into it. And some of them drown in the waste. When you said that was a good way to ruin a dinner party, that's actually the first thing that popped in my mind. So make sure everyone go read that book so you can hear about that crazy story that everyone should have some appreciation for the fact that it doesn't smell like crap in this room right exactly. now because that's what it would normally smell like throughout most of the history so um yeah. joan we really really thank you for your time and once again it's new and improved and that's through free to choose and how how often are those going to be coming out you think do we know that yet every second week okay. um from today until yeah. we'll see as long as we can find innovations and improvements in in human life. Uh, so every 14th day. Great, great. Well, we will uh, make sure there's a link to that in the show notes. And anything else, Charlie? Well, yeah. And then where where can people uh, find you if you want to uh, give them your uh, you know website? Well, Twitter. Or, he doesn't want to go on Twitter, but maybe, maybe, maybe you can find Twitter, him on Twitter. Yeah. Well, I'm. Uh, I do. I mean, I'm, uh, I don't uh, practice what I preach all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's irresistible. Uh, so I'm on Twitter, Johan K. Norberg. Johan K. Norberg, that's, that's me. Uh, and also, I think the easiest way to get in touch is uh, Johan Norberg Official on Facebook. Uh, that's where I tell people about most of the things that go on. Uh, and apart from that, I think Free to Choose Network is the, the place to, to watch my films in this new video series. Great. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate your time and, and thank you for joining Good Night Liberty from Sweden. That's yeah. Much appreciated. <laughs> exactly. Good night, Liberty and sweet dreams. Thanks. This That's, was a pleasure. John, it was so, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. Take care.